200 of us with many different giftings and roles welcome about 200 international students to come for a traditional American Thanksgiving dinner. Many of you, as I look at you, have served at this event because it takes so many of us and we can only let the first 200 or so students come in for a dinner. Um, we do a small program here in the Sanctuary Worship Center where we uh, talk about traditional Thanksgiving as what cultural tradition cultural Thanksgiving, as well as what we are most thankful for, which is Jesus. Um, and then we have, it's just fun, trivia, etc. And then we have this dinner where many of these students have never seen green bean casserole, mashed potatoes are weird, ranch dressing is a novelty and so fun every year. And, um, and then there's just activities, the photo booth, we play in the gym, just different ways to connect. And so we love this event. And I have one of our key volunteers who's gonna come join me. We've been doing it for more than I've been here, 15 years, 16 years. Um, but this is one of our key volunteers. Her name's Kristen Judge. She's also my mom. Yeah, she's awesome. And she has joined our team in so many levels as figuring out rides and how to register and table hosting. And we've just really developed this event together. And so for the last 12 years, you have made this event a priority in a busy season, holidays, family, all the stuff you work as a teacher at Northview, et cetera. Why do you make this event such a priority? What does it mean to you? Good morning. God has really shown me that this event has, can help me to grow spiritually and grow in my understanding of his love for all peoples as well as for the students. In a world that is broken recently, we ask what we can do. God has shown me that we can pray and we can reach out to these students. Um, I always learn something about myself during this event through serving alongside of our church family and from the students that I've met. And this event, this is fun. It's a joy to feel like I'm doing something that is meaningful and being obedient. And the extra joy is, is that I get to do it with my family. Yeah. This is, this is answered prayer to a mother and to, that I prayed that we would get to serve Jesus together. So it's always answered prayer when that yeah. gets to happen. Thanks. Yeah, it's so sweet to do it. There's many of us serving as families. Yes. Sometimes we pick our little kids, but you also serve with your adult family too. You can serve with your life group, serve with a friend. It's pretty special. So that's what it meant to you when we're talking about what mm -hmm. it means to international students. 12 years, so that means more, probably more than 1,000 students have come through here at least. What have you noticed? Mm -hmm. What do they say about why this event is significant to mm -hmm. them? First of all, the openness of the students has been overwhelming and the connections that have been made, both at that event and continued on. College students feel isolated. They're alone being so far away from family, let alone oceans between family as well. They're super receptive to seeing a Christian church, meeting Christians, the, hearing the gospel. This might have never happened in their home countries. I have a student that I met a few years ago that had been in our country for just about three weeks. It was a country where she would not have heard anything much about Jesus in the way that what she received. And she just was very overwhelmed at the, the love and that she felt here and the welcoming spirit that was here. Yeah, most students picture a Catholic church because that's what they saw in a movie. So this is a, a very <clears throat> cool experience for them. Mm -hmm. Um, the contact that we have with students, the connections, many of them like to come back. First of all, this was our first, their, often their first contact with the church and with coming into a Christian community. And then they've come back. They come back. We had a young man who came last year, and he'd come for a few years, and he connected with one of our families here, and he said, I have to bring my wife. I'm married now. She needs to feel this, too. It was awesome. Yeah, 
They do. They come as guests and then start hosting their own friends. Mm -hmm. And so there are 540 new international students at UT this fall alone, let alone, you know, all the different ways that students come to study or through Water for Ishmael, et cetera. So West Blood and Global Opportunities will be our main conduit for inviting, but for us to pull off an event and have about 200 international students of all ages and their families, we need you guys to help be part of it. And every year, it is a joy to see how God um, invites you guys into this story of taking one step closer to him to show and share his, God, his love through this event. And so the table hosts are our main driver of the event. We have about 30-some tables hosted by you guys. Um, you'll bring your place setting, again, simple for 8 to 10 people. And um, it's kind of like you're on a mini mission trip, uh, engaging in conversation, going through these stages, sitting at dinner. You're with your group for the night. We'll assign you students, or you can bring your own guests. And then from there, all of us are supporting, whether it's transportation, cooking the 17 turkeys with Dan Lang and his team, um, driving, uh, set up, tear down, prep activities. It's fun. So we would invite you guys to take your time this week, pray. What does it look like? Who can you do serve with? But we would love for you to join our team, westgatechapel.org slash serve at Thanksgiving, and we are out at the table. We would love for you guys to take a next step with us and see what God's going to do at this event one month away. So with that, I'd love for you guys to meet somebody here. Maybe stand up and say, uh, the question today is, what is your Sunday afternoon tradition or rhythm? Do you have something you do every Sunday? Stand up and meet someone. <laughs> I have been giddy to song, sing this song with you this morning. This is a song about searching for all the answers, searching for, for, for fulfillment in the world and coming up empty and then, and then seeing what God does when he comes into our lives and changes everything. So if you guys would, wouldn't mind, I'd appreciate singing this song with me.
never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let That's me right. down. You're never Sing gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let good amen you may be seated we're going to come to our time of offering together so i want to invite you just to pray with me as we uh, continue our worship together god thank you for allowing us the opportunity again this morning to gather together here in your house to worship you you are a good god So, Father, we gather here to worship because we acknowledge 
that we don't deserve your love, but you give it freely and we want nothing more than to be close to you. And so this morning, God, we pray that you would receive our worship as we have sung songs of praise to you, as we study your word and seek to align our hearts and our lives to you, as we give back of our offerings this morning, we recognize, God, that everything that we have comes from you, and our greatest desire is to take what you have given us and to use it for the purposes of making sure that more people know about your son, Jesus Christ. So as we give our offerings, Lord, we give not out of compulsion, but as an act of worship to say, Lord, our deepest desire is that you would take it and multiply it, and that more people would know your son, Jesus. And so receive it as worship today, Lord, and we pray that you would be glorified. Continue to speak to us this morning as we get into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, uh, you can grab the buckets that are on the center aisles and begin to pass those out to the sides as we collect our offering this morning. started this morning again. Uh, it was interesting as Julianne was uh, sharing with us today is just a reminder to me of how fast this year is moving. Can I get an amen? Uh, the holidays are almost completely upon us, which is a little bit crazy. And uh, as they are, uh, in a few weeks, we're actually going to be giving out to you uh, just a uh, small calendar that will list all of the different holiday things that are happening here around the church so that you can get them on your calendar and be prepared. But we wanted to make sure you knew about one of those this morning uh, as we get ready to kick off the Christmas season. Feels really weird to say that already, but uh, Christmas is coming, which means uh, we have got one thing that we we're excited about and going to be doing, which is we would really, really, really love to put together uh, a Christmas choir that is going to kick off our Christmas season at the beginning of December uh, here coming up shortly in the month of December. And so if you would be interested in being a part of that, whether you have done this in the past or not, we would love for you to join us and be a part of it. We're going to be uh, having it in our services on December 3rd. And so you'll see on the screen the information. Uh, there's going to be rehearsals on Thursdays beginning in November from 630 to 8 here at the church. Child care provided. You can register online. We would love for you to be a part of that. I believe, if I remember correctly, Adam told me, I think it's like age eight or something like that and up can participate. Is that right, Adam? Fourth grade, Fourth grade something like that. So um, we would love young and old to come and join us and it will be a great way for us to kick off the Christmas season. So please, uh, please be sure to do that if that is something that would interest you. Now, as we uh, get into our message this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 2. That is where we're going to be centering ourselves this morning. We're going to be kicking off a new series that is entitled Uprooted. Now, uh, we've been talking as a church for the last many weeks as we especially launched into our five-year vision about how as a church, our deepest desire and as followers of Christ, our deepest desire is to be deeply rooted in Christ, growing deep roots in him. And, but one of the things that I want us to acknowledge is this, is that as we are sinking deep roots into Christ, growing in our relationship with him, 
we also need to recognize that there are things that need to be uprooted from our lives if we're going to be all that Christ has designed for us to be in him. Very specific things. Now, uh, this past week, I walked out into my backyard and uh, one of the, anybody here love like taking care of their yard, love really nice looking green grass, manicuring the bushes. Like uh, it's one of the things that I love and take joy in. And uh, yet this last week, as I walked out into the backyard, I noticed something was a little bit amiss. As I turned to the right and I walked over to the set of bushes we have along the fence line, I noticed coming up out of the bushes, there was this strange looking like thing that looked like a tree was beginning to grow up out of the bushes. You can see it in the picture up there on the screen. The other angle might help it to, to see a little bit better, but uh, there was this thing growing. And as I saw it, I began to get really upset, largely because the same thing happened last year. I noticed the sucker last year and I actually climbed underneath there with some large uh, clippers and cut that thing down. But here it is again even bigger than last year, much thicker as well. And uh, I, was, I was a hair frustrated by this, but I've seen this, what I call weed slash tree, numerous different times. Now, it starts out typically pretty small, and you'll see in this picture on the screen, uh, this actually, I went out after I saw this in my backyard to the front yard, and I saw that little thing beginning to grow. And, and you, when you look at that, it looks really small, and it looks kind of harmless. But what I've learned is, is when it's small like this, you can take it and just pluck it up out of the ground very simply. But once it gets to about yay tall and the roots begin to grow deeper into the ground, it takes some brute force to begin pulling this thing out of the ground. Can you only imagine? I looked at this small thing in my backyard underneath a bush at one point and said, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. And I simply let it keep growing to where I ended up with that massive tree beginning to come out of my bushes. Okay. And so as I looked at it yesterday, I did what I did. I finally gave in. I resorted yesterday to cutting it down again, down to the nub against the ground as low as I possibly could. And yet I know that next year it shall return. It will come back, except for the fact that later this week, I'm going to come back with some really strong poison and shoot it into the roots to make sure that it's killed off for good. But as I thought about this, I thought about this truth. This weed and this tree has taught me a very important lesson. When I see something growing that doesn't belong, it is wise to pull it out by the roots before it's too late. And I want you to think about that in our own lives, in our walk with God, as we journey with him, seeking to grow deep roots in him and yet to uproot things that have no place in our lives. As we go through this series together, there's gonna be a theme that runs through it. And I want you to write this down on your notes. If you grab those when you came in, you can write it down. The theme that will run through all of the next few weeks together is this, small things can become very huge problems when we allow them to grow. Very small things that at one point seem insignificant can become very huge problems in our lives when we allow them to grow roots. And this morning specifically, we're going to be talking about uprooting spiritual apathy. 
It's an issue that I believe permeates the church at large today in many Christian lives. And it is an issue that is something that we need to root up from our lives at all costs as it affects so many different areas. Now, I want us to ask the question, what is apathy? How do we define apathy? Well, apathy is a lack of a few things. And you'll see this kind of quickly. I want to give you this definition just very quickly this morning. Apathy is a lack of interest, it is a lack of enthusiasm, and a lack of concern. That's kind of, if you look it up in the dictionary, that's how you would define apathy. I can remember when, uh, not that long ago, about a year or so ago, when my father retired from his job in California, uh, he, uh, he, he was working at the Long Beach Rescue Mission, but he had, he had worked a number of years, and my father was one of the most hardworking people that I know. Like, he is the kind of guy that when he has a job to do, he puts his nose down, he keeps going, he does it to the best of his ability with a whole lot of passion to make sure that it is done well and it is done right. He did that not only in his working days when he was working uh, in, a, in the finance area and a couple of different corporations when he was working at the rescue mission. It's the way that he ran our home and the things that he did in life. But I remember when he came to retirement and he turned in, I believe it was his four-week notice, it was only a couple of days later that he said, you know, Rob, something weird happened. I turned in my notice and all of a sudden, I had no desire to do the things that I was doing. He said, you know, all the little things that never seemed to bother me, they were huge issues now. And I began to realize I wasn't as passionate. I just wanted to be done. Anybody here ever experienced that when you leave a job and you're just like, man, I don't want to finish while I would just much rather put my eyes on something else and move right out the door. I know that we've got students in here, and most of us, I believe, as I'm looking at the age in the room, have been through high school, and you come to that season in high school in your senior year, what we call you get what? Senior-itis, where we're just tired of doing it. We got our eyes focused on something else, keeping our nose down, our interest level up, our enthusiasm, or even our concern for our classes or grades kind of starts to go out the window. I can relate to you. I'm like very, at the very, very end of my master's degree, and I am done. I mean, I... I'm ready to be out of school personally, but there are many different ways that we can experience apathy, a loss of interest, enthusiasm, and concern in our lives. This morning, though, I want us to tackle spiritual apathy. And what is spiritual apathy? Spiritual apathy is a feeling of indifference toward God and his purposes in our life. Spiritual apathy is a feeling of indifference toward God and his purposes. And what's interesting to me is that as I look in Scripture, I see that it talks about that when uh, you come, when we come to the time when the Bible says that Christ will return, that this will be a major issue for the church. In Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus is giving signs about the end of times and what things will be like and talking in language that like, you know, is, is, has a lot of imagery to it. One of the statements that he makes that I think is so profound is that he says that in that day, the love of most people will grow cold. And that includes his church. And in order for a love in our hearts to grow cold, it is a sign of a spiritual apathy that takes root. We see this as well as we look into the book of Revelation. 
And when we look in Revelation chapter 2, and specifically this morning as we look at John's letter to the church in Ephesus, in which he is giving the very words of Jesus to this church, he is going to tackle this issue of a root of spiritual apathy that apparently is taking root in the church. I want you to read it with me. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. If Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. As we dive into this passage this morning, I want us to first begin by taking a look at the church in Ephesus and understanding what was going on in and around Ephesus. Uh, In your notes, Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. A little bit of background for you. Ephesus was one of the largest thriving cities on the coast of the Roman province of Asia Minor. Uh, It had an incredible influence based on its large port where they would have numerous ships coming into the docks. They would have numerous ships coming in, bringing wealth from all over the Roman Empire. It also had incredible influence because of the trade routes that it sat on, major trade routes that allowed it to be this huge, thriving, wealthy city. Not only was it thriving because of this port and the ships that would come through, the money that would flow through, it also had a thing in in the city itself that you see here in the pictures called the Library of Celsus. It was the third largest library in the entire ancient world. It housed over 12,000 different scrolls scrolls and was the only place where you could actually come to read something. It also had a great theater a theater that held over 25,000 people for various performances. But another noteworthy aspect of Ephesus was this, is that at Ephesus, there were over 30 different temples to various different gods, various different Greek and Greek gods and goddesses that they would worship. They would also practice emperor worship, worshiping the emperor of Rome. But one thing that stood out above the rest that you'll see a rendition of here on the screen was what was called the Temple of Artemis. It was considered to be and is considered to be one of the great ancient wonders of the world, a complex like it which nothing had ever been built. And they worshiped the god Artemis. Artemis was a goddess of fertility, specifically of the wilderness and of hunting. 
But the thing is, is that people would travel from all over the Roman world and come to Ephesus to come to this incredible temple and to worship this God, which you saw that statue that's in the museum, uh, in the museums today that would sit in the middle of this temple with an eternal flame in front of it. And they would come to worship people from everywhere. It was against this backdrop, a pagan backdrop that Paul began to preach the gospel in Ephesus. And truly for Paul, this was the place where he centered himself as he would go on his missionary journeys and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was the perfect place for the gospel to go forth. And when we read in Acts chapter 19, it tells us that Paul actually stayed in Ephesus for about three years. He began by preaching to the Jewish community in the synagogues, but they weren't quite having it. He then moved over to a lecture hall of Tyrannus and preached there the gospel for two years to any and all people that were coming from the Roman Empire to this place to worship Artemis, they would come and they would hear Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts tells us that Paul did many miracles and he actually had great favor during this time with the people. And we understand that it was during this time in Ephesus that the church began to thrive. Many people were convinced and believed and put their faith in Jesus. But what it also did was it caused an up roar amongst those people who worship Artemis. You see, the worship of Artemis also was a way that money came into the city. You had different tradesmen and craftsmen who would craft these little statues of Artemis that they would sell, little terracotta statues that people could buy, take home, and use for their own personal worship. Well, Paul's message was directly against the very thing that they were doing. Paul's message was essentially this, is that there is no other God but the one God. And as he taught different ethical standards and stood against the culture of Asia Minor, the number of people that were coming to faith then began to decrease the number of people that were going to worship in the temple. Thus, the number of statues were not being purchased and it would begin to have an economic impact because of this. Acts 19 tells us that there was a riot that took place. And during this time, there was a guy by the name of Demetrius who got up and brought all of these people. You'll see in the picture the great theater in the distance that sat about 25,000 people, filled it up, riled up the crowd, and they went out to riot against uh, Christians and Jews and Paul and his people specifically. And because of this opposition... It tell, the Bible tells us that Paul had to leave the city. He wanted to go into there and begin into this, this uh, theater and begin to tell people the gospel and to speak with them directly. But his associates and many other people told him it wouldn't be a good idea and he would need to leave. It is in this backdrop, this incredibly wealthy city, a place where the worship of many gods is taking place, where the church itself is facing opposition. It is here that we see in the book of Revelation as Jesus speaks to this church that he actually begins to praise them for many, many things. Look with me at Revelation 2, 2 through 3 again. His words to the church are this, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. 
Man, when we read this, Jesus is heaping incredible praise upon the people. What is the first thing that he says, letter A? The first thing that Jesus says is this, I am intimately involved. Those are essentially the words that Jesus says. He says, I know your works. There's two Greek words for I know uh, in the Greek language that could have been used here. One is gnosko. Gnosko carries the idea of a progressive acquisition of knowledge. In other words, I don't know something, but I am progressively learning more and becoming acquainted with it. But that is not the word that is used in this passage when Jesus says, I know your works. The word that is used is oida, and oida means a complete and a full knowledge. In other words, it's not a progressive learning, but it is a complete knowledge about something. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I know you completely. I know your works in and out. I want you to think about this in terms of what we read in Psalm 139. If you would, take a moment and close your eyes for me. And I just want you to listen to this passage. Block out distraction. These are the words of David speaking about how he sees God's involvement in his life. He says these words, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Now listen to how he defines that. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light become night around me, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. As we think about this, we come to an incredible understanding of the depth of God's knowledge of who we are and how intimately he is involved in our lives. You know, the truth is, is that most of us, I believe, as human beings, have a deep desire to be known. We desire to have people who know us, a place where we feel completely known and understood. And it is an awesome feeling on one hand to know that the God of the universe is that intimately involved. And yet I venture to guess, like me, some of you are also sitting there going, I don't know if it's as great as you think it is. Because if God knows everything about my heart and my concerns, he also knows my failures intimately. He knows my sin. He knows my struggle. But here's what's so beautiful about how God knows you completely. Is that not only does he know the burdens of your heart, the fears that you have, the sadness that you carry. He knows your greatest failures, the things that you would never tell to another person, and yet what? He still loves you. 
to know that the God of the universe knows me that intimately and yet still loves me is one of the most beautiful things I could possibly know. And what Jesus says here to the church is, is I am intimately involved in your life. I know your works. And he proceeds to praise them for so many different things. Listen to this. In letter B, he looks at them and he basically says, I know your aggressive posture. Let me explain that. He says, I know your toil and your patient endurance. In other words, the people were passionate about the mission of sharing Christ with others. The word toil that is used in the passage actually speaks of labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion exhaustion, an all-out effort that demands all that a person has to give, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Now, in sports, we celebrate this type of effort. When a person gives everything for the team, one of the re- it's one of the reasons that I love watching something like the Olympics. It's because we have these athletes who have poured everything that they have into the sport and, and the glory that they are chasing, literally day and night, training their bodies for that one moment where they will compete to have a prize. They give everything that they are. They toil for it. But it's one of the things that I also hate about sports. Like I hate it when I'm watching my favorite baseball team and a guy hits a ground ball and he just jogs to first base rather than giving everything that he has. When you look at your favorite football team and their quarterback seems to be spending more time partying during the week than watching game film. Or when you're watching basketball and you see someone who has great offensive skills and who is a ball hog, but then gives very little effort on defense. It's the reason I hate watching the NBA All-Star Game. It's a bunch of guys who can really play basketball but give very little effort. The people were passionate about their mission of sharing Jesus with others. Their toil was a sign of them giving everything that they had to do what Christ had called them to do. But not only were they aggressive in their evangelization and sharing of Christ with others, but it said that they did it with patient endurance. And when we think of Acts chapter 19 and what was happening with the church, we begin to understand that they were doing this even in the face of much persecution. They were patient in the midst of very difficult circumstances. The letter C, it helps us to see as well as Jesus praises them for their desire for holiness. He says, I see your desire and your holiness. He says, you cannot bear with those that are evil. And I want you to think about what surrounded them. Again, here in Ephesus, they're surrounded by people that are worshiping numerous different gods, fertility gods, where the worship that was taking place at the temple involved temple prostitutes and people that were engaged in all types of sin. And yet this is the culture that was trying to suck them in. And then as they stood out against the culture that was also persecuting them and in the midst of that, They continued to maintain their holiness. In other words, being set apart from sin, but also recognizing that they could not bear with those who were evil, calling them to holiness as well. And what does he say following that letter D? He basically says, I love your zeal for exposing false teachers. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. In other words, the people were educated in what they knew about God and what they knew about Jesus and what they knew about the gospel. And because they were so vigilant in understanding what they knew about God, they were vigilant to then protect the purity of the gospel message, not allowing it to come in. Think about the praise that is being heaped on these people 
They're being told, look, you are awesome. You are, you are so involved going out and sharing the gospel. You are toiling with everything that you have to make sure that people know about Jesus in spite of the fact that there is opposition that you are facing and you're keeping yourselves holy and you're, you're exposing false teachers and you're keeping the message pure. In letter E, he says, I know that you have done all this enduring for my sake so that my name will be lifted high and praised. And I want us to just pause here as we read this letter to the church. We're like, wow, man, this church is the who's who of churches in Ephesus. They've got it all together. I want you to ask this question, though, first before we move on. Would God say this about the church today? Would he say these types of words about the church in our world today? Now make it personal. Because you are the church. Would he say this about you as an individual follower of Jesus Christ? Do you carry that same passion to toil for the sake of the gospel in the face of opposition with an aggressive posture, keeping yourself holy and set apart, having a zeal for his word and making sure that the, that the purity of the gospel message is protected? You see, we live in a world and a culture today that I believe even in the church is moving away from that type of fidelity to God and the things of God. And there is a warning that is given to this church that was not only a warning for the church in Ephesus, but as we read scripture and understand Revelation, that is a warning to the future church in the end times. And when we read Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, it makes this clear. You see, what Christ also spotted was a fatal characteristic of the church that must be uprooted. And I can think of no better way to say these words than to play a little song for you. You guys know this song, don't you? Go ahead, feel free to sing along. Feel the moment. One of the famous songs from the movie Top Gun actually clearly expresses what is just about to be said in this passage. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, I have this one thing against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. I want those words to sink in. After all of the praise that was just heaped on this church, Jesus says to them, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. What could this mean? What does this mean? How do we interpret it as well for ourselves? I want you to do this for me. Take in your notes, letter A, just cross it out. Cross it out. I decided to change the wording of it, and I want you to write these words in its place. What did this mean? the expression of their zealous love for Christ was diminishing. When Jesus says that you have abandoned the love you had at first, it tells us that the expression of their zealous love for Christ was diminishing. Many commentators will say and scholars believe that what was happening in the church at this time of this writing is that there was an unfaithfulness that was beginning to develop in the church when it came to sharing the gospel with other people and telling them about God's love. As well, 
They believe, some commentators believe that others were having a struggle with being loving towards each other or towards others who didn't know Christ. Even some would suggest that the love for Christ that they had in their own hearts in general was being lost. The truth is, is that the expression of their zealous love for Christ diminishing could have been manifested in any number of ways. I want you to think about, though, how it often shows up in our own lives as followers of Christ. Think of the number of ways the diminishing of our own zealous for Christ and or zealous love for Christ can be seen. It can be seen when we compromise and we allow sin to take root in our hearts. It can be seen when we neglect to spend time seeking God in his word and in prayer. It can be seen when we allow unforgiveness to take root in our hearts towards others. It can be seen when we demonize and fail to show God's love to people who are different than us or think differently than us. It can show itself when we speak hatefully to or about other people. It shows itself when my life decisions don't take God's desires into account. It shows itself when we stop valuing being a part of the overall body of Christ. And it shows itself when we don't value the sharing of our faith. You see, what I want you to catch this morning is we say the expression of their zealous love for Christ was diminishing. What I want you to see, even as we list all of those things, each of these things are merely symptoms of a much deeper problem. These things are not the root themselves. They are an expression of a sickness that is below the surface. In the church in Ephesus, if the church in Ephesus or we are going to be successful at rooting out spiritual apathy in our own lives, then we must understand this truth. When the weed or the tree in my garden keeps springing up every year and growing bigger and bigger, I have to quit trying to just lop off what I see on the surface and address the root problem. Literally, the root needs to be uprooted. And so what this expression of their zealous love in the areas that they believe they saw it taking place where their love for Christ was diminishing, what it revealed, letter B, is a root of apathy toward God and his purposes that was taking root in their lives. In other words, when that sin issue in our lives keeps rising to the top, When we neglect spending time in God's word or prayer, when our first response towards others is angry or hateful, when we realize that we are prioritizing so many other things before God, we must pause and ask ourselves the all-revealing question, why? Why is it that this is happening? Why am I struggling with this sin? Why do I not seek God? Why are my words so damaging? Why does God come second? Why am I not sharing my faith? And when we honestly answer that very simple question, it is then that we begin to get to the very root of the problem in our lives because there exists an apathy toward God and his purposes for us. Where our fidelity to his love and showing his love has diminished. Let her see at its very core the root of spiritual apathy is a forgetting of God's love. And I want to explain that to you. It's a forgetting of who God is. It's a forgetting of what God has done in my own life, which then causes me to focus less on what he desires for and from me 
and that causes me to focus on what I desire for my life. And here's what I want you to note as you think about this passage that I think is so essential this morning. This negative characteristic is spoken at the same time all of this praise is heaped on the church as well. Do you see that? Would you note with me for just a moment that it is possible for us to do good things and to be doing good things and yet have a root of apathy that is beginning to take over in your heart all at the same time. And it is a requirement for us as followers of Christ to have enough self-reflection to take a step back and to see the evidence that shows that this is happening and then begin to go and to tear those things out by the root. And so how do we awaken our hearts from spiritual apathy? I want us to look at the answer to this question that comes quickly in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, where Jesus continues and says that the answer is this, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The first thing when it comes to overcoming this root of spiritual apathy that Jesus tells to the church is letter A, to remember. All throughout scripture, we see that God calls his people to remember. All throughout the Bible, remember the things that I have done. Remember the ways that I have provided. Remember the ways that I have delivered. Why is this a constant theme that we see? Because when we remember who God is in our lives, it changes and transforms us. It reminds us of our complete weakness and inability to achieve anything in this world that will bring us complete and total fulfillment. And it reminds us that God is the only one who is able to do so. And there's a caution that I need you to have as we read this passage when it says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. The caution is this, is that when it talks about remembering, it's not about just remembering your works and like, hey, remember that you're supposed to be doing these things, so go back and do them. No, it's about remembering your love for the Lord and why you fell in love with him for the fir- in the first place. Because when you are falling in love with God, the God of this universe and Jesus, because what he did for you on the cross, it's not about just trying to remember to do good things. Those things will be naturally produced in your life as an outflow of his love for you. Remember where you have fallen from. If I could give you a prescription of how to do this in your life, a way in which I try to practice it in my own is this, is to remember who God is to remember that he is the one that has created all things and that he is the one that is in control of all things, that he is the one who literally gives us life and gives us breath, that nothing in this world happens outside of the control of his hand. He rules all kingdoms and all rulers of this world. He is our all-powerful God. And as I remember who he is, it's important for me as well to take the step of remembering who I am. I am his creation, but I am also the one who has rebelled against the one who created me. I am the one that even though I try, I still find myself sinning against God and finding myself at times separate from him because of my sin. You know, 
I think most of us in this room who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ can experience the same thing, that though we profess our love for Christ, we continue to wrestle in sin regularly. It's important for us to remember that. It's important to remember who we are. Why? Because it brings us to a deep place of understanding our need for God. If I were to be completely vulnerable, vulnerable with you and share with you where I see at times roots of apathy in my own life, is that often it's very easy for me to excuse, like I can do the right thing, I can say the right thing, but my mind is a dangerous place. When I'm hurt, when I'm angry, when something doesn't go right, maybe you might relate to me, the self-talk that can happen inside of my head is ungodly at times. And it's one of those areas that if I don't keep it under check and under control, that roots of apathy, if I let it go, can just sink in and it has a major effect on my life. Maybe you relate, maybe there's another way for you. But as you realize that, I want you to remember what scripture says about us. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 121 that we were alienated and separated from God. Paul in Ephesians chapters two says that without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Literally by nature, we are children of God's wrath. There is a holy, perfect God and a really screwed up creation. And I don't deserve him. What I do deserve is death. According to the Bible, death, physical and spiritual and separation from a holy God. But as I remember who he is, who I am, and what I deserve, the beautiful thing is to then move into that place of remembering what he has done for me. Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2 and says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ It is by grace that you have been saved. God, looking at his creation that had rebelled against him and continues to rebel against him, sent his son Jesus into the world to die on a cross to pay our penalty, the death that we deserved, so that if we would put our faith in him, that we could experience eternal life and salvation. I encourage you, That when the scripture tells us to remember, that it is calling us to remember these types of things. Who God is, who we are, what we really deserve, but what God has given us in his son Jesus Christ. And allow our hearts to be rekindled in love for Christ and who he is and what he has done. Whether that is for the first time or the second time or the third or the fourth God calls us to remember so that what happens is the transformation that takes place in our life flows from our love for Christ and who he is. We are called to remember, but letter B, we are then called to repent. Remember from where you have fallen and then because of the love that you have for Christ, repent and do the works you did at first. I want you to think about this because oftentimes we think of repentance in terms of regret or of being sorry, or of being remorseful. But this word actually has much deeper meaning in scripture. The word repent means this. It means to return, literally to turn the other direction. 
Repent means to return to God with all of our heart, making a firm decision to turn away from where my life is headed and to move toward God. In other words, one journey has ended and a new one is beginning. You see, repentance is not just about adjusting the course of your life. It's not just, oops, I made a mistake. Let me er, er, get things over just a little bit. It's not about just stopping a bad habit or some behavior. It's about returning to God and beginning new. Do you see the difference? When Christ calls us to repentance, it's not just, oops, God, I'm sorry. I'll try to shift and be better. It's a laying down of our life to take up his. It is a letting the old go and beginning new with Christ. It's the decision that you first made when you first came to Christ and put your faith and trust in him. But it is also a daily decision that we make to war against spiritual apathy taking root in our lives is to consistently come to the Lord and to recognize and see the ways in which we have allowed the roots of spiritual apathy to come in, to confess them and to rip them out and to begin new with Christ. How does Paul describe it? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. I lay it all down. And so I would say this to you today, believers, what roots of apathy in your walk with God, what expressions of that have you been seeing in your own life? Places where you haven't been paying attention or just kind of saying it's not really that big of a deal, but where roots have begun to sink in that need to be pulled up. And I would ask you this morning, would you be willing to take time to remember just how desperately God loves you to bring you to that place of repentance where you would say, I'm willing to leave the old behind and to begin anew with Christ? Would you tear out the root in true repentance? But I would also acknowledge that this morning there are probably people here who have never put their faith in Jesus. And for the first time, you're getting a clear picture of the gospel, a picture and an understanding that there is a God that created you, that loves you so deeply. And that no matter how hard you try to find fulfillment and peace and security and everything you could ever desire in this world in your own strength and power, you recognize that this world is constantly failing you. And it's because you've gone against what God has created you for. And he looks at you through his word and he says, it doesn't matter what you've done, how much you have hated me, how much you have persecuted my people, it doesn't matter at all. I am offering to you a free gift of salvation that you can receive by confessing your sin placing your faith in my son who died in your place, your penalty for your sin so that you could be reconciled to me. There is no greater love. And not only is that, that gift incredible, but it's incredible to me that the holy God of the universe would then desire a broken person like you and me to be with him forever as a part of his family. That is what he offers to you today. 
And he says that all you need to do is to acknowledge your need for God. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Call on the name of the Lord for salvation and faith, surrendering your heart and your life to him, and you will be saved. And I want you to have that opportunity today. Would you pray with me? Before we pray, I just as everybody's head is bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to ask a very simple question. Is God speaking to you this morning? Can you sense from the Holy Spirit, Christian, the areas of your life where there is a reflection of spiritual apathy? There is something that is going on that is showing an apathy that you have in your relationship with Christ. Something that you need to tear out, a root that needs to be pulled. Can I just ask you, is the beginning step of repentance this morning. If you hear God speaking, would you just raise your hand this morning and say, God, I hear you. I'm hearing you. Don't be afraid of people seeing. Just raise your hand and say, God, I hear you. And God, I wanna respond today. I wanna begin anew with you. Let me pray for you, God. I pray for every single person in this room that is raising their hand, or even if they're raising it in their heart and they hear your voice this morning, I ask God that you would meet them in a very special and unique way. That as they confess to you, Father, the areas of their life where they're experiencing this apathy, that Lord, you would meet them afresh and new. Father, that you would overwhelm them with the forgiveness of their sin. That they would be reminded, God, of the depth of your love for them but that you would begin with them anew on a journey of changing and transforming their heart as they yield this area of their life to you. Give them freedom today. Break the chains of sin, Lord. Break the chains of spiritual apathy and help us, Father, to walk closer with you, with all of our hearts. I would also invite you this morning that if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, but you've said, you know what, I may not know everything, but I know enough. And I want to make that decision to follow Jesus today. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. If you would like to do that, I would just simply invite you to pray this prayer in the quietness of your heart to the Lord. There's nothing magical about the prayer. It is just a prayer of commitment to God. And I would invite you to pray these words with me. Heavenly Father, I love you, and I thank you, and I acknowledge this morning my need for you. I confess to you that I am a sinner, and I thank you that you sent your son Jesus into this world to die on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe in Jesus, and I want to call on the name of you, God to be saved as I place my faith and my trust in you. I surrender my life to you. And I ask God that you would begin a new work in me of changing and transforming my heart as I give my all to you. I just want to ask if you prayed that prayer while every eye is closed, every head is bowed. If you prayed that prayer this morning, would you just slip up your hand quickly so I can be praying for you?
just give you praise for what you're doing in their life. That Lord, you have brought them to a place of recognizing their need for you, but also recognizing the depth of your love for them. And God, I pray that as they begin this new journey with you, God, that you would help them to grow, not only in their knowledge of you, but in the surrender of their heart and their life to you. And God, I ask that you would receive glory. We love you, Lord Jesus.
room and then the believer who's straight far away. Maybe Rob said there's just one area of your life. I'm talking to both of you. Don't wait. You may think, well, the song started is too late. It's not. It's only too late when we breathe our last breath on this earth. Amen. Speak what is true. Sing it. 
service today, I just want to say, if you made the decision to place your faith in Christ for the first time, can I just ask you to do one simple thing? Would you grab one of those connection cards in the pews, just write your name on it, and drop it like in the offering box in the back, uh, bring it to me. I would love the opportunity to just talk with you about that decision that you made to follow Jesus Christ as you take this journey with him. And uh, as well, if there is anything that you would like prayer for this morning as you're wrestling with the Lord, things that you need for healing, our prayer team would love the opportunity to pray with you. Tom and Kathy are up here uh, in the very front. We would love for you to stop by and see them. They would love to go with you to the prayer room. With that being said, church families, we go out this week. Uh, look for the symptoms of spiritual apathy in your heart and life. Take steps this week to root that out and allow Christ to root that out of your heart and life. Fall deeply in love with him and allow him to change and transform you and be passionate about sharing the good news of his son with other people as you go out and you serve the Lord. God bless you. Have a great week serving him.